basically says if you've ever because it's interesting like you maybe you think well i'm not married how can i commit adultery and jesus sort of nails it for you he says guess what if you've ever lustfully looked at another person you've committed adultery that jesus just like he boiled murder down to anger in a real way jesus boils adultery down to lust and so lust is what we're talking about tonight and uh, to do that i want to look at a passage uh, from john from the gospel of john and it's actually john uh, chapter four and uh, it's, it's a story that it's Jesus's encounter essentially with a woman whose that was her lust was her story and lust was her struggle a woman who was uh, so sexually broken that she had not only gone through five different marriages but she's currently living with her boyfriend and lust kind of was the deal for her and the question that I want to ask us tonight is how does Jesus look at someone who's struggling with lust how does Jesus see, how does he relate to someone who is really, really struggles with sexual brokenness? And to do that, read John 4 with me. I'm, I'm going to read not all of it. I'm going to read John 4 as I drop some paper. John 4, uh, starting at verse 7 and down just to verse 15. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Jesus, if you know the story, he's passing through Samaria. He's been on a long journey. He's thirsty. He says, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And John lets us know that Jews, uh, for Jews, have no dealings with Samaritans. All you need to know is, is basically Jews found themselves culturally and racially superior to Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with, nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Let me pray for us. Lord uh, Jesus, we thank you for this conversation. Lord, we thank you... um, that when we open scripture, we don't encounter people that have it all together. We encounter people that are just like us. And Lord, I pray that you would take this conversation you had with our sister, someone who, like many of us, has a story of lust and a struggle of lust, and that you would take it and um, just powerfully minister and speak to our hearts um, tonight. Lord, we ask that for your honor and for your glory, that you would be gracious to us in that way. We pray these things in your name, Lord Christ. Amen. 
Yeah, so we're talking about lust, and I don't know if you're a, an English person or not. I, I tried to be when I was at the University of South Carolina. I came in with high hopes of being an English person and majored in English and dropped, I guess it was like my second semester because I had a couple of teachers I didn't really like, and basically because I don't have patience, I switched to psychology, which is what I finished in. But poetry has been something that I'm always, I've always been interested in, and it's been National Poetry Month recently. And I, I recently came across what is quickly becoming my new favorite poem. And here's the title. I, the title just was what drew me in. The title is called An Honest Description of Myself with a Glass of Whiskey in an Airport, Let Us Say, in Minneapolis. And it's by this Polish guy. His name is Szeszlow Milov. So n- not sure that's how you say it, but I'm from South Carolina, so that's how I'm going to say it. And here's how the poem goes. It's just the most, one of the most honest things I've ever read in lust. Here's what he says. He's thinking about himself at the airport, and he says this. He says, My ears catch less and less conversations, and my eyes have weakened, though they are still insatiable. I see their legs and miniskirts, slacks, wavy fabrics, peep at each one separately, at their buttocks and thighs, lulled by the imaginings of porn. Old Lecker, it's time for you to the grave, not to the games and amusements of youth. But I do what I have always done. Compose scenes on this earth under orders from the erotic imagination. It's not that I desire these creatures precisely. I desire everything. And they are like a sign of ecstatic union. It's not my fault that we are made so. Half from disinterested contemplation. Half from appetite. And what I love about that is one of the hardest things when you come to talk about lust is that it's hard to talk about. Because if I were to kind of do that thing and say, all right, let's show of hands, who of us has, have really struggled with lust? Either we lust after or we want to be lusted after. Let's just raise them up real quick. Like that would get awkward real fast. Especially if I were to say, all right, who of us have lusted today? Just raise it up. Raise it on up. Now you come, come on up and share, like, how did you lust today? Like if we wanted to make RUF not, not exist anymore, that would be a fun exercise. Um... And the reality is that one of the things that's so hard about the seventh commandment when Jesus boils it down to lust is it's really hard to talk about it. And yet, it's so crucial. You know, John Newton once said about lust that lust is like a mushroom that grows best in the dark. And and one of the things that you have to do to begin to fight it is you have to begin to bring it into the light. And that's just really hard. But I hope that this passage helps us. Because what I love about this passage is we get to see Jesus interacting with someone who has struggled with lust, not just in the last year, but for their last, essentially her whole life, from as much as we can tell. A woman, like I said at the beginning, who literally has gone through five marriages and is living with her boyfriend because at some level, lust is the deal for her. Whether it's she's trying to find life in men lusting after her, or that she's trying to find life in entering into that lust with them. Lust is the deal for her. And so what I want to do is just sort of ask that question again. What does Jesus see? What is, how does he look at those of us, which I'm assuming, by the way, that those of us who struggle with lust are more in this room than less. But how does he look at someone who's struggling with lust? And to do that, and how does he look at this woman? And what I want to do is kind of ask three questions, both of this woman and of ourselves, as we begin to think about this struggle. And here are kind of the three questions. The first one I want to ask is what draws us to lust? The second one I want to ask is what keeps us in lust. And then the last one I want to ask is how do you begin to break the spell of lust? So what draws us to lust, what keeps us in lust, and what begins to break the spell of lust? So here's the first one. Just think with me for a second about what drew this woman and what draws us into lust. 
In other words, when you look at the Samaritan woman, by the way, every time I say that, I hear in my voice, American woman, like the song, like, Samaritan woman, that would be incredible. <laughs> it's just well, how I think about it. Um, but if you were to kind of think about what, at what point in her life did she decide this is where life is to be found? At what point in her life did she kind of say, lust is going gonna, is gonna to give me something that I really, really need? And what was it that she thought lust was going to give her? And I think we can at least say that there are three things. There probably are more, but we can at least say there are three things that I think she and we really, how we get drawn into lust is there are three kind of promises, three things that we're thirsty for that, that lust promises it will quench it. The problem is it always breaks the promises, but we'll get to that in a minute. And the first one is simply this. We're thirsty, she was thirsty, and we're thirsty for acceptance. In other words, we're thirsty for someone to see us in our nakedness and not reject us. To be naked with us and accept us, to move toward us. And this, interestingly, is why a lot of us get into porn in the first place. Porn is a place, as, as false as it is, it's still a place where I can be naked with someone and they don't reject me. At some level, they're accepting me, even if it's you know, through a computer screen, even if it's through a million miles away. At some level, I'm feeling accepted. And for the Samaritan woman, the fact that she's been in five different marriages, at some point, as a woman who's been rejected, as we've seen by other cultures, and probably feels has experienced a fair amount of rejection in her life, she's looking to a place to be accepted, and lust is a place where she at least thinks she can find that. So acceptance is one of the ways. We're thirsty to be known and accepted. But then the second thing that I think that kind of draws us into lust, that draws her into lust, is that we're also thirsty for purpose. In other words, we're thirsty to be a part of something that's bigger than us, to be a part of something that we can be drawn into, to be a part of something that we can actually spend our lives for. In other words, to have significance and purpose. And what's interesting is when we don't have that, When we get bored or indifferent, that's when lust can really have its way with us. And this is why for some of you, summer break is incredible and awful. That In some ways, you love the freedom, but in other ways, the freedom gets consumed by your lust. And you don't really know how to break out of it. If you think about it just from biblical biblical stories, one of the stories that's always fascinating to me is the story of David and Bathsheba. And the part of that story that's fascinating is, you know, we think about David and Bathsheba, and usually we enter into that story when David has slept with her and kind of the consequences afterwards. But what's fascinating is to look at how David gets there in the first place. And one of the things that commentators have kind of pointed out over the years is that if you were to put how David goes from kind of just, you know, being around to seeing this woman Bathsheba to having to have her, if you remember the story... That one of the things that the, the commentators point out is part of what is happening with David is the time in which he falls into that temptation is a time in which he's supposed to be fulfilling his role as a king. And that means he's supposed to be at battle with the people. He's supposed to go to war with the people in that season. And instead, commentators love to say he's at home. And he's sort of lost maybe a little bit of vision. He's lost a little bit of purpose. He's a little bit bored. And, he's, and he's, when, you're, when we're bored, it's a prime time for lust to have its way with us. And we can sort of say that at some level, this woman is perhaps looking for some sort of purpose of her life. She's looking for something to give her some sort of significance. Or maybe we can even say she's so cynical about life that she doesn't really know what to do with it anymore. And she's lost her vision and she's lost her purpose and all she knows, all she knows is lust. So we're thirsty for acceptance, we're thirsty for purpose. But I think there's one more at least that we're thirsty for, is we're thirsty for control. 
We're thirsty to, be, to control things in a way where we can guarantee that what the way we're going to encounter one another is not going to risk rejection and it's not going to risk conflict and it's not going to risk getting messy. Another way of saying it is part of why we're drawn to lust is we hate intimacy. Because intimacy and real relationship with one another is hard. Whereas lust has all the benefits of a relationship without any of the costs. Whereas real intimacy has, has both. It has the costs, though. It has the hard stuff. It has reality. It has conflict. It has misunderstanding each other. It has not knowing what to do. It has messiness. Whereas lust is a way of getting something. In other words, lust, one of the promises of lust is this. Lust promises satisfaction without intimacy. Lust promises you you can have, you can be fulfilled, you can have satisfaction without the hard work and the awkwardness and the riskiness and the messiness of intimacy. No one, I think, got this better than John Mayer recently. John Mayer did an interview with Playboy, uh, and here's, he's, he's just one of the most honest interviews I've ever read about porn and lust. And here's, uh, he, he basically... Um, he gets real honest just with how much he, and he wakes up and he just talks about how much porn he looks at in a day. And then the, the interviewer starts asking John Mayer, like, what is it about porn that really is attractive to you? And here's part of what he said. You have it in your uh, handout. He said this. He said, I grew up in my own head. As soon as I lose that control, once I have to deal with someone else's desires, I cut and run. I'm pretty culpable about being hard to live with. I've, I've had a good run of imagining things into reality. I mean, I have unbelievable orgasms alone. There's always, they're always the best. They always end the way I want them to end. And I have such an ability to make believe, I can almost project something onto my wall, watch it, and get off to it. Sexually, musically, it doesn't matter. When I meet somebody, I'm in a situation in which I can't run. I can't uh, run it because another person is involved. That means letting someone else talk not waiting for them to remind you of something interesting you had in mind. Uh, in other words, part of what draws us to lust, we could sum it up like this. Part of why we're, we're thirsty for acceptance, we're thirsty for purpose, and we're thirsty for control. But another way of saying it is, we want satisfaction without the hard work of intimacy. Because at the end of the day, we're terrified. We're, we're terrified of, of, of being vulnerable and leaving, it in the, leaving the ball in per, another person's court to love us and to meet us where we are and to know us. In other words, we're afraid of intimacy and reality. That's why Russell Brand, I don't know if you read, Russell Brand wrote this fascinating letter about his own addiction with alcohol and drugs recently. And he essentially said this. He said, listen, it was, I'll never forget what he said. He said, listen, I don't have a drug and alcohol problem. I have a reality problem. In other words, what he's saying is the reason I go to drugs and alcohol is not because so much even about drugs and alcohol. What it's about for me is I can't stand living in the reality. and I can't stand living in reality. Living in God's world in his terms. Living in a way where I, I'm forced to do real intimacy with another person. In other words, I need something to numb it. I need something to escape it. I need something to get away from it. And that is drugs and alcohol. But for a lot of us, that can be lust. So first, what draws us to it? But then second, I want you to think... If that's what draws us to it, then what keeps us in it? And that's the thing about this woman that you have to kind of ask is, why why not after the second divorce did she sort of say, you know, this isn't working? Like, why was there marriage three and four and five and now she's currently living with a man? In other words, you can ask yourself, like, why if I know that lust is ultimately going to let me down and I've experienced it letting me down, 
Why is it that I keep going back to it? Why is it that I keep believing it's lies? Why is it that I keep going to this place that I know is not working out and is not satisfying me? And I think, again, there are a couple of reasons. And the first one, I think, is guilt. That part of the way lust works is what we can simply call the guilt cycle. And the guilt cycle is pretty simple. I do something lustfully that I shouldn't do, and then I feel guilty. And then what do I do with that guilt? Well, I do with that guilt what I know to do with it. I need to numb it or escape it, so I go back to lust. And then it quenches my thirst for a second, but then I feel guilty again, and I need to do something with that guilt. And so it's this endless cycle where guilt, what do I do with my guilt, turn to lust, feel more guilt, and you can get easily, easily caught up in this cycle where you're constantly turning to it even though you know it's it's not going to do the trick, and yet you don't know where else to turn. Another one is shame. So if guilt is, is sort of knowing that what I'm doing is wrong, shame is feeling my, like I'm wrong in my person and in my bones. If guilt is I know that I'm not doing what I should be doing or I know that I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing, then shame is, you know, if guilt is something wrong with what I'm doing, shame is something wrong with who I am. And if you put yourself in this woman's shoes, it's impossible not to see that she feels tremendous amounts of shame. You know, one of the things that if you've ever heard John Ford before or read it before, one of the things that's interesting is that most women did not go to the well in the middle of the day. Why? Because it's incredibly, it's the, that's the hottest point of the day. Most women in this community would go to the, to the well either to the cool of the morning or the cool of the evening. So why is this woman going to the well alone? It's because she feels tremendous amounts of shame. She can't stand to be looked at with that sort of condemnation where the women in her town sort of know what she's done, they know her reputation. And there's a sense in which when you feel feel like others see you in that way, that's how you begin to see yourself. That's why Brene Brown likes to say that shame, if you want to see shame like the petri dust of shame where it exponentially grows, you need three things. You need secrecy, silence, and and, uh, judgment. You don't talk about it. You keep it under wraps, and then you feel judged for it, and that grows incredible amounts of shame in us. And if you see yourself with shame, then you wake up and you feel worthless. You, and you don't see how anyone could possibly love you. You don't see how anyone could possibly want you or pursue you. And that's exactly how this woman feels, caught up in this lust struggle. But that also leads, guilt and shame also lead to another thing that keeps us in, in, in lust, which is despair. If guilt and shame make us feel worthless, despair makes us feel hopeless. That I can never really change. That I can't really even envision or imagine my life apart from this struggle. Leo Tolstoy wrote this fascinating article, a short story, that, um, right before he died, called The Devil. And it's a fascinating short story. And it's interesting. That basically, the story is this, this kind of is set in, in, in Tolstoy's time. And this wealthier man who has this woman who begins working for him, that as soon as she comes to his house and he sees her, he decides, like, I have to have her. It was a David and Bathsheba kind of moment. And so this guy begins sort of scheming ways he can just be with this woman. And finally, they, they find a place in the woods and they have sex together. And this develops this pattern where every time, they, every day, they're sort of looking for a way to get off in the woods together and go have sex. And then finally, the woman moves away and he thinks, okay, I'm free of this lust. I'll be okay now. But he finds himself finding reasons to go over to the town so he can just find this woman and, and they can have, go back to the woods and have a good time together. And as the story builds, what's fascinating is Tolstoy died before he picked an ending. So he left two different endings. 
And the two different endings are incredibly profound. Here are the two different endings. The first one is this. The God knows he has to do something about his lust or it's going to destroy his marriage and it's going to destroy his family and his kids. It's going to destroy his life. And so the first one, he has someone meet him in his house and they go into this room and he, he, he reaches into this drawer and he pulls out a revolver and he kills the woman. And the second one is similar but different. Same thing, he knows he has to end it, he knows he has to do something about it, he has her come into his house, and he, they go into the same room, but he pulls out a revolver, and he kills himself. And as you read it, it's striking because it's like, that is, we think lust is going to lead to life, that's why we keep doing it. It's going to somehow magically make us feel okay. We say with outstretched arms, please connect with me and make me whole, and yet where it leads is to death and shame and guilt and despair the image that I keep thinking about is an image from actually my own story. When I was in high school, uh, my friends and I, it was a weird kind of day where there was a time in my life where it was probably 10th or 11th grade where I, wanted, I was like a wannabe skater. Like my friends were kind of like actual skaters, but like I was like trying to wear the clothes and like, I'm the skater too, guys, right? And they were like, no, but you can hang out with us. And so we had gone to this uh, abandoned high school and uh, we had gone into this field to play hacky sack, which is... Not the most embarrassing part of the story, but an embarrassing part of the story. And we're in this field, and it's, uh, there's this dumpster right behind the high school. And we're kind of kicking around the hacky sack, and um, this guy pulls up in a truck. And, uh, and one of my friends knows him, and, he, and he kind of, we follow him over there. And he's like, no, no, don't come over here. And we're like, why? And we kind of get up to him. He's like, no, I'm just unloading some dirty magazines. Like, you don't want to, like, he, we knew him from youth group. He's like, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian. He's like, you don't want to see that. And we're like, yeah, we don't want to see that. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't want to see that at all. And so here's what happens. So my friends go home, but the seed is planted for me. Lust has already become the deal for me. It's already become a huge, it's already become my functional savior somewhere in middle school. It's a long story. And so I decide I'm going back. And I go back that night, I drive my little pickup truck back to the dumpster. I climb into the dumpster. I search through the trash and find the magazines. And I take them home. And when I think about lust, that's what I think about is there's a sense in which lust reduces you to thinking the only place you can find love is in a dumpster. That you are so worthless, this is all you've got. This is the only thing, this is the only place you're going to find it. This is the only place you're going to feel accepted. And that's exactly where Jesus meets this woman. And the question we have to ask is, how does he begin to break the spell of lust? How does he begin to undo it in her? And what I love about this story is notice what he doesn't do. Here's this woman, and she's got, you know, her struggle is so severe. It's broken relationship after relationship. It's really undone her life, where she literally is alone, has no friends, has no sense of any kind of going anywhere. And what Jesus doesn't do is say, here's a copy of Every Man's Battle and the ten things you need to do to get yourself out of lust. Like, he could have done that. Like, he could have said, all right, lust is your problem. Let me give you three steps that you need to start doing every day to get out of lust. Now, don't, I mean, certainly we need practical ideas. Certainly, don't hear me saying those are bad things. But what I love about what Jesus does, he basically says this. You thought that lust is where you're going to find life your whole life. In other words, he's drawing from Jeremiah 2, where the Lord says to his people, you have forsaken the fountain of life, and instead you've dug for yourself these wells, and you bring these broken cisterns that can't hold any water, and yet you come day after day with your broken cisterns trying to find life trying to quench your thirst, and it's just, how's it working out? It's not working out. 
And what I want you to see is that is that I'm here. And I'm the living water. And I'm the one lust promises you that you can have satisfaction without intimacy. But the thing you don't understand about lust is it always breaks its promise. But Jesus says to this woman and to us, listen, intimacy with me is satisfying. Deeply satisfying. And guess what? I never break my promises. Lust has never kept a promise. Ever. Jesus has never broken a promise. And so what he does is he doesn't give her a list of things to do, but he gives her himself. And what I love is what it does in this woman is fascinating to me. So here's this woman who's filled with shame, and she's been alone for how, who knows how many years. And she can barely look people in the eyes because she's filled with so much shame over her, her sexual brokenness. And yet, do you see what, if you were to look down, what, what happens is she actually, as she meets Jesus and she sees that he is the Savior she's been looking for, that everything she thinks lust can give her, Jesus actually can. That everything lust, every promise lust is broken to satisfy her and make her whole, Jesus can actually do and give her. And she goes to her town and a revival literally breaks out because she says one thing. She goes to her people and this is what she says. If you look in the past, she says, come see a man who told me all I ever did. And do you know what she's saying? She's saying, come see someone, come meet a man who knows everything I've ever done and yet loves me and yet wants me and yet has come and pursued me to make me his own. Come meet this man. Who is like this man? Who has love for someone who is so sexually broken she's ruined six marriages? Who has love for someone who is so sexually broken that they're seemingly hopeless and have nowhere to go, no place to go? Who has love for that kind of person? And what I want you to see is that Jesus does. And when you begin to see that Jesus loves you as you are, not as you should be. Jesus loves you where you are, not where you should be. Jesus loves you with all of your sexual shame and brokenness and every stupid night you've spent in five points doing things that you will never tell anyone because you're so ashamed of them. Jesus knows that and guess what? He loves you. He knows that and he, he doesn't sort of say, get away from me. Ugh. He says, I love you and I want you to be mine. I love the way that there's a story out of Augustine's life that I love where Augustine, if you know anything about him, this was his, this was his story. He was the guy who struggled so much with lust that he literally prayed at one point, Lord, give me chastity, but not yet, not yet. And then finally, Augustine in this weird way gets converted. He's actually out in his yard under a tree. He's wrestling with this, his sexual guilt and shame. And he hears this toddler in the yard over saying, take up and read, take up and read. And so he finds a Bible and he opens it. And he opens it to Romans 13. And in Romans 13, he reads Paul saying, listen, don't give yourself any longer to sexual immorality. But instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he meets someone at that moment who knows everything he's ever done. And yet loves him. And it changes his life. And so, you know, he's had all kinds of different hookup buddies in the past. And he's out in Rome, the streets of Rome one day. And this woman runs up. She says, she sees him. She says, Augustine, Augustine. She's trying to get his attention. She says, Augustine, Augustine, it's me. And it's one of his former lovers. And she comes up to him, Augustine, Augustine, it's me. And not probably quite knowing what to do or how to respond. He simply says, he looks at her in the eyes and he simply says, yes, but it's not me. And what he's saying is, he, much like the Samaritan woman, he's met this Jesus who knows everything he's ever done. And he said, you know what? These bro- this broken cistern of lust has never satisfied you. But find everything you've been looking for in me. 
Because I am, come, come, come taste me. Come drink of me. Come fi- quench your thirst for acceptance and quench your thirst for purpose and quench your thirst to let me have control and quench your thirst for everything that you're looking for in me. So much that you're the same person, but you're not the same person. Close with this. I know uh, if I were to ever, I'll never do this because I'm a campus minister. But if I could like rechange my life and do a movie about this story, if I were to ever do a movie about the story, I know exactly how I'd want to end it. Yeah, I love directors that, that do sort of visual, stunning visuals. Terrence Malik, uh, Paul, Paul Thomas Anderson. I love you know, directors that sort of have shots, focus on objects that are significant. And I know exactly what I'd want to do. Closing scene of my movie, here would be the shot. This is verse 28. And it's the water jar that day after day after day after day after day this woman has brought to this well and yet she's still thirsty. And it's this water jar that she's left behind. Because she's found water that will make her never thirsty again forever. She's found what she's been looking for. And my question for you is, have you, have you found what you've been looking for? Have you found the kind of love in Christ that will never disappoint Have you found the kind of love in Christ that can say, I know everything you've ever done and yet I want you? Do you know the love of Christ in that way? Let's pray. Jesus, it seems too good to be true. And yet it is. It's the gospel. That we are far more sexually, lustfully messed up than we want to admit that if even our friends in this room knew how messed up we were, we'd be ashamed and embarrassed. And let, yet, Lord, you know, and you love us. And not only do you love us, but you delight, you sing our rust and love, you, you, you took all of, all of our sexual sin to the cross and you paid for it so that we might be forgiven and freed. And Lord, I pray, not just for myself, but I pray for my friends tonight that we could know this living water that you're talking about here. In the same way that this woman, however many thousands of years ago, knew it. That we can know it just as deeply. That we can go and tell our friends, let me come and meet the man who knows everything I've ever done and yet wants me and loves me. Lord, I pray this in your name. Amen.